Good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. And there, if you notice, there's a there's a secret to this table to keep it from flipping over and spilling coffee and, and everything. So I don't have it in. I don't have it done yet. Just nope. All right, we're just going to keep the weight on the right side of the table. Uh, if anybody happens to have any two small springs in their pocket, if you carry springs around, if you have those, we'll take them. Uh, good to see everybody this morning. Uh, don't don't worry about springs. We'll be fine. Uh, we are in our last week of the book of First John, and I will tell you that uh, John is better at something than I am. There's probably a, a long list of things, but at least in this scenario, he's way better than I am. Uh, I went to uh, a public school, believe it or not. I was a product of public school education. There's nothing wrong with that, but uh, at that particular public school, uh, I was told that I was fairly bright. Um, and, you know, maybe they lied to me. I don't know. It could have been the public school that I went to. I won't name which one. But I get to Clemson, and I realize it's not the case. Like, I'm not very bright. I don't know how to do anything. I took every AP class they offered, and when you get into your first English class and you write your first paper, well, maybe not you. Let me say me. I wrote my first paper. Pretty much my professor said, what, where, have you been in school? Um, you, you don't know how to do any of this. So John does something today that I, I've struggled to do all my life, and that is write a good conclusion. Like for me, it's been so hard. I remember the essays in which they said you got five paragraphs. You get, you know, you get an introduction paragraph with a thesis statement, then you have three body paragraphs, and then you have a nice conclusion paragraph. I was terrible at that. Like I couldn't do it. I just kept the body going on anyway. So um, really, really bad. So today, John does a great job. He's landing the plane like we've been talking about the past couple weeks. Like he is on the runway today. Like they have touched down, nothing broke off, everything's good. Um, and so this is like his parting words to the people that are in and around Ephesus that are receiving this letter. Um, and I'll go ahead and tell you too, there, there's, um, there's a strange couple, there are a couple strange verses in this passage. And, and I will be open and honest with you. Like I don't have great confidence that I know exactly what these two verses are saying. We're going to approach them, we're going to read them, and we're going to talk about what we do when, when these types of passages come up when we're reading the Bible, um, and we're just going to be honest about it, um, but they're there. But before we jump in, let's pray, and we'll, we'll look at uh, the last part of chapter 5 in 1 John. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for teaching us uh, through your spirit. We thank you, God, that you're a father who doesn't desire to leave us as we are. Um, God, you desire for us to be uh, changed and renewed and made into new creations. And so, God, we thank you for the effective uh, work of Jesus that is alive and well in us. We thank you that you regenerate what was dead and you make something beautiful. Thank you, God, for creating family where it was not. Thank you, God, for giving us assurances that we can know you, that we can be known by you, that we can be used by you. Today, God, as we look at your word, I pray that it's, it is just several affirmations for those of us who are following you. And for those, God, that are sitting and listening that do not yet know you as their Savior, God, I pray that you would speak to them and, and reveal to them, God, that these things can be known by them as well, by grace through faith, if they just trust in you. God, I pray that your word would, uh, would speak, God, and I pray that your spirit would convict those uh, who are not yet alive in you. But God, I pray that you would make them so. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your assurances. Thank you for Jesus, and it's in his name we pray. Amen. So 1 John chapter 5, uh, we're going to start in verse 13, um, and basically what we're going to do is, is, like I said, John is writing a good conclusion, a solid conclusion to this letter that we've been in for, for several months now, and, and we're going to look at basically just five things that we can know. Like he makes a couple statements in here in, in modern English that basically says, we know this. 
And so that's what we're going to look at. Like, this is one of those passages, except for those two strange verses that we'll talk about, it basically teaches itself. We don't have to add anything to it, because if we've been listening to this whole book, it is a solid recap of what we've been looking at, uh, but there are a couple additional things that we need to know. And, and probably, to be honest, like, the way that he concludes his book is my favorite closing line of any book in the Bible. Like, I love it. Um, and we'll, we'll talk about that in just a moment. So we're going to read through these verses and then uh, go back and talk through them. 1 John chapter 5, starting in verse 13. It says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. Verse 16, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who, is, he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true. And we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. And so John has been writing this book to the people at Ephesus who were young in their faith. A lot of them probably did not have that strong Jewish background that many people that were readers of the New Testament did. And so he's basically telling them some very basic tenets. We talked about the idea that a lot of these are just like fundamentals of the Christian faith. But also he's giving people like these lists of, of ways in which they can know that their salvation is true, that they have truly been bought, that they've truly been purchased, that their life is secure in the security that only God provides through Jesus. And he starts in verse, 10, in the, verse 13, and he basically reiterates something that he's already said. He says, I'm writing these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. If we're reading this text, the first thing that we need to see that we may know as a result of this letter and as a result of the assurances of God is that we can know exactly what he said, that we may know we have eternal life. We may know that we have eternal life. This was a question that popped up like when Jesus would encounter people, like when Jesus would encounter like the super religious, like we read about it over and over. It even led to like the idea of, of asking what is the greatest commandment, same idea, it, it led to us to understanding that we can't love God and money. A lot of things in the Gospels, like, how do I know that I know? Or how do I know in their words, like, how can I enter heaven? How can I be sure? John is letting us know that, yes, we can be sure that we have eternal life. Like, if we go through this book and we do a, a really brief, brief recap, he tells us, uh, tells us how we can know in the form of several of these if-then statements, these conditional statements that we've been talking about. Uh, they start off as, if we keep his commandments then we may know. We talked about it two weeks ago because he brought it up again. Uh, there's another way. It says, if we confess Jesus as Lord and believe that he is so, we may know. He goes further and he says, uh, if we do not make a practice of sinning, which will come up again in just a moment, we may know. If we love one another, the family, the body, those who have also been redeemed by the blood of Jesus, if we love them, we may know. And then he says this in chapter 4, verse 10, 13. 413, pardon me, not 410 because that's, that's not a real number, but 413 says we may know because we have the Spirit of God now living in us. 
as a seal, as a guarantee, and as a guide and as a protector, we may know. John's, one of John's biggest ideas is, was to combat uh, the current notions of modern-day religion in this particular place and time in which Gnosticism was beginning to rise, and they were saying, no, 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 you, you don't know, you can't know, that's not possible. John's saying, no, that's not true. You can, and we should. And he lists out several of those things. And we're not going to go back through every one of them, uh, but that was just a quick list. If we keep his commandments, if we confess Jesus as the Son, if we do not make a practice of sinning, if we love one another, and also just as a result of knowing that the Spirit is in us, we may know um, that we know. You know, I know that sounds very crazy, but we may know that we know. We may be sure that we have eternal life. And eternal life, just as re- to reiterate, I think growing up in a, a BOBC, which is a big old Baptist church, nothing wrong with that, but that was, that was my situation. Like, I think it was always pitched to me, come and walk this aisle, say these words, do this dance, get dunked, and you may go to heaven. But here, we want to make sure that we frame this with an understanding that eternal life is not just going to heaven. No, eternal life is being bonded to God through Jesus, indwelled by the very Spirit of God, which starts here and now. Eternal life starts the moment that we sacrifice our lives in favor of Jesus and he has paid for our sin by grace through faith. Eternal life starts then. We are not awaiting eternal life. We are not awaiting the promise of eternal life. We are living in the moment of eternal life. Now, does that extend to heaven and new earth? Absolutely it does. But it starts the moment that we say, Jesus, I want you more than I want my sin and I trust you to grant me access to God. That's eternal life. And we can know. We can know. And John's been great at way better than I would be at listing all those ways that we can know. The second thing that he tells us that we may know in this passage, uh, starting in verse 14, it says, And this is the confidence that we have towards him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him. The second thing John tells us is that we can know for sure that God hears us, that God hears us. I've heard so many people confess that they say, I feel like my prayers uh, don't get past the ceiling. Like, I feel like they don't leave the room. Like, I feel like they're just, they're just empty and they're not going anywhere. Well, a lot of times that is the doubt that we are born with that is trying to alienate us and separate us from God. If we have been bound to God, He is a good Father and He hears the cries of His children. Now, there is a caveat here, and it says uh, we can know that He hears us and that He will answer these requests if we are praying according to His will. Not according to my whim, not according to my desires, not according to my wants, but according to his will. Now, this does not equate to just us saying, hey, God, I just want your will to be done, and just throwing out a blanket, I don't know what to ask for. Now, that's okay sometimes, but that's, he also says, make your request and your petitions made known to God, be specific to God. Uh, I was talking to Andrew Hendricks a couple weeks ago because he... Uh, Got anything? There we go. Good. Andrew Hendricks, not here today, bragging on you. Uh, he may be listening from North Carolina. He and Lexi got away for the weekend um, just to spend some time away, and, and he has he feels like God's birthing in him this idea of, about teaching on prayer. And, and we saw, so we started talking about this idea that when I think about what it means to fundamentally pray uh, for what God wants, I immediately go back to like Nehemiah 1 and 2. And in Nehemiah, we see uh, this guy who was working for someone that was not of God, but he felt called to go and rebuild the city, to rebuild the place of God. 
And so what he did is he began to fast and pray for many days. But what Nehemiah did is he didn't pray his words. No, he prayed God's words. He was like, God, remember when you said this and that and this and that. And he wasn't trying to get God to actually call those things back to memory. But he said, look, I am telling you that through my prayers, I am agreeing with what you have already said that you want to do. And now I want them too. And so when we pray and when we're asking God for things according to his will, basically prayer is not treating God like a genie in a bottle and us going there, rubbing it and waiting for him to pop up. No, it's saying, God, I, I think I understand what you want through your word, through your spirit indwelling in me, through your people that have been speaking to me, and God, I want what you want. Prayer is far more about us aligning our will with God's will than it is about us just begging for a list of things to occur. It's about saying, God, I want what you want. And so guess what? For us to pray in God's will, to actually ask for the things that he wants, it means that we have to spend time before we pray actually asking God what he wants, spending time in his word to see what he wants, spending time with family who also pursuing God, hearing what God wants in their life. And then we can say, God, I've heard that you want this. I know that you want this. I want it too. And so I'm going to ask for it, and then I'm going to work towards it because I believe that you want it. James 2 tells us that faith without works is dead. It's the same thing. If we are praying for something that we don't believe that God will do, then those prayers may not get past the ceiling. But he says we pray for the things that God wants. We pray for the will of God to happen. That's why when Jesus teaches us how to pray in the the Lord's Prayer, uh, he just says, Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus isn't teaching us the exact words to pray, but he's teaching us how we should pray. God, I want what you want. And so that means we spend time getting to know exactly what God wants. And I know that seems like an impossible endeavor, but again, the very spirit of God has come to live in us to tell us that he is alive, that he is well, to be that testimony like we talked about last week, and he can attest to the very will of God in your life if we let him. And so sometimes, even before we sit down to give God this petition and this list, we just need to say, hey, God, before I ask for anything, this is the one thing I ask. Show me what you want. Teach me what you want and make me want it too. I think if there's the most fruit, the one most fruitful prayer that we can pray repeatedly is, God, show me what you want. And then once he does, we go after it. We pray for it until he does it. He's not going to change his mind. So that's the second thing that we can know. We can know that God hears us if we are asking according to his will. In Luke chapter 11, right after Jesus had taught the disciples how to pray, he also reminds them that, look, a lot of you are pretty good fathers. You're pretty good dads. Which one of you, if your son asked for a fish, would you give him a snake? And he says, understand that our Father in heaven is far better than you. He's not going to give you something that is going to hurt you. If you are asking according to his will, he will hear and he will give. He will give you the things that you need. We can know that God hears us and we can know that he will provide as a result. Continuing on to verse 16 and 17. These aren't one of our to know statements. These are those confusing verses. And I want to read them out loud and tell you what we do know and tell you what we don't know and just just be honest and upfront about it. Verse 16, it says, If anyone sees his brother committing a sin not leading to death, he shall ask, and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. 
I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. So let me just go ahead and make this confession. There are some places in Scripture where I can read and I can be 100% certain of what God, the point that God is trying to get across. Uh, verse 16 and 17 of chapter 5 in 1 John, I, I am not sure about the point that he's trying to get across. And, and to be honest, like there is very little popular consensus as to exactly what's being said here. Here are some things that we need to know going into places like this in Scripture. Number one, Scripture is not going to contradict itself. God is efficacious, so that means that he is eternal, so are his decrees, so are his words. He is not going to change because he doesn't have to because he's already perfect. And so he's not going to say something here that's going to cause us to rewrite or rethink or reorient the way that we've thought about something previously. Can it add to it? Yes, but it's not going to change it. So this is not going to contradict anything. Very often this passage is used to say, well, uh, this means that you can lose your salvation. Well, if that's the case, then what he said two verses ago is, is not true. So that would invalidate something that he just previously said. So we can take that off the table. And so... Very often, we have to approach passages like this with humility and just say, you know what, I'm not entirely sure, and that's okay. For the large majority of Scripture, we can look and we can go back to people uh, who wrote about it even when we were there in places like this. We can go to people who are far smarter than we are, who understand the intricacies of the language of the day, the culture of the day, and we can look to them and say, hey, what's going on here that I'm missing? Here's the thing with these two passages and their rarity. There's not a great deal of popular consensus on these two. Because there's a couple things here that are, that are fine. Like if, if anyone sees his brother committing a sin, uh, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. So that's about seeking restoration for a brother or sister in sin. We're good with that. Okay, but then it starts talking about sin leading to death, sin not leading to death, not to pray for this. Like it's just, it just is confusing. And so I can't teach with great certainty what it's saying here. I can teach with great certainty a couple things that we can take from this. Uh, if we see a brother or sister who is struggling with sin, we, we pray for their restoration. That's affirmed by Galatians 6. It's affirmed in other places as well. We should seek the restoration of family if they are trapped in sin. We love them enough to go to them and say, look, I am praying for your restoration, but I'm also going to call out this sin in your life because I love you, and I want to see God bring you back and not lead you down this path. So we can, we can know that. Um, if you ask my opinion on this passage, I'll give you my opinion and tell you what I think it is. But again, it's just my opinion, so I do want to put that asterisk beside this. I believe that this is talking about sin in which uh, you have two types of people, people that will see their sin and will repent and confess their sin, in which case sin is forgiven. But then I think there are also people whose hearts have grown hard, they will not repent, they will not confess of their sin, and that will ultimately lead to death for them, and, and that's where they're going. That's where their, their life is heading, and, and that's just the case. Because the only sin that will not be forgiven... Now, we also have the sin of blasphemy in, in, in the, the, the Gospels. I think that was a different scenario, talking to some very religious people and some religious people not giving credit to Jesus, giving it to somewhere else and not giving credit to the Holy Spirit somewhere else. I think this is a separate incident. But the only sin that will not be forgiven is the sin that's not confessed. And I believe that those are the sins that he's talking about here. But, again, my opinion. Uh, if you go and you read a ton of different people in this passage, you're going to get a lot of people that just say, I, I, just, I just don't know. I messaged uh, several, like four of my mentors this week who handle scripture well, who are very intelligent people, who have been in the saddle with God for a long time, and, and pretty much every one of them came back and they said, you know what, I, I, don't, I can't say for certainty what those two verses mean, and so I'm okay with that. So there's that. If you would like to meet and talk over coffee for that, man, I would love to. If you have insight into that, I would love to hear it, but that's, that's just where I sit. So we know 
that we, we pray for those who are struggling in sin, especially those within the family. Next thing that we can know, verse 18. It says, we know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who has been born of God protect. I mean, who he was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. Here's the third thing that we can know. We know that if we are of God, we do not keep on sinning. Now, we talked about this several weeks ago, what this looks like. This looks like this idea of perpetual, unchecked sin. The Spirit of God that is in me is the convicting agent for my sin. If we can continue down a path and sin and sin and sin without that voice in me saying, stop, then there's something wrong. And that something wrong is we are not united with Jesus. We are not united to God through Jesus because the Spirit has been placed in me as a convicting agent to tell me, stop. Now, we have to choose to yield. We have to put our foot on the brake, but that voice will be there. That sin will not go unchecked. It says if we are with God, there will be roadblocks in the way. There will be things that will stop us. Other uh, translations are going to say they will not continue to make a practice of sinning, perpetual, unchecked sin. We can know that if we are bound to God through Jesus, that will not happen. That will not happen. If there is a struggle in you uh, that there's a, a pet sin, which we call it just one thing that continually comes up over and over and over, and you no longer feel remorse for that, you've rationalized your way around it, and you've even said, you know what, that's not really a sin. Man, we need to talk. We need to have a conversation. We need to sit down and have a heart-to-heart. And, and just listen, you need to talk to your community group leader, or you need to, you need to talk to, to my wife, or you need to talk to Zach and Becky. Reach out to people. If there's this sin that you used to call sin, but now you're like, nah, it's not that big of a deal. I think I misinterpreted that. Man, let's have a conversation. Let's see what's going on. So we can know that if we are united with God, we do not keep on or make a practice of sinning. And adding to that, it says, but he who was born of God, alluding to Jesus, protects him or protects them, and the evil one does not touch him. As a result of knowing that we no longer make a practice of sinning, the other thing that we can know attached to that is that Jesus came to, like, man, to cut off the fact that sin was our master. He came to say, no, no more. Stop. Sin no longer has control over you. Satan is no longer your master. The prince of the power of the air is no longer the one that directs your life. I am. So you can stop. You can be protected. Satan no longer has a claim on you. And there's great peace in that. There's great assurance in that to know that the master of my life has changed. The master of your life has changed. It's a huge, huge deal. The next thing that we can know, verse 19, it says, We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power or rests in the power of the evil one. Uh, we can know this, and this sounds simple, but it, it's so beautiful. We can know that we are now owned by God himself. Owned like in the familial sense, like a father owns his son. Not like a piece of property, but like offspring, like children. We can know as a result of Jesus and these other things that are listed that we are God's. Like we are God's kids. We are God's people. Hebrews would say that we are his royal priesthood, which takes it to a whole nother level. But we... We are. We can know that we are his. There should be great comfort in that. Like, uh, there's great comfort, like, growing up, even, even under the protection and the guidance of my dad in my home. Like, there was, there was great, like, almost a privilege there to know that my dad was looking after his family. Like, when the doors closed at night and he would check the locks and he would check the lights 
and that he would go to bed. There was great peace in knowing that my father had done what he needed to do to make sure that his family was safe every night. And I do it for my family every night. Like I go and I, I check the doors. I, I check the cars and make sure they're locked because our cars have been pillaged more times than I can count. And so we just do those things. But it's just my way of making sure that my family and our stuff is taken care of. Imagine just taking that to the next level of like God being this father, this holy, holy, holy father who's perfect in all of his ways. Imagine the ways in which he looks after his kids. Imagine the ways in which he looks at his children and the things that are under his control and under his purvey. And that should bring great peace to me. To know that the world no longer has claim on me, the world no longer directs my path, my master has changed, and now it's God and his stuff in his ways, and his family. Maybe a lot of you didn't grow up with a father. Like, like I know that I was incredibly blessed to grow up with a father that I did who told corny jokes, who sang songs to get us out of bed every morning, and they were terrible, but that was my dad, and he's still that dad. I grew up with that privilege and that, man, that, that starting place that put me way ahead. Maybe you didn't grow up with that, but guess what? As a result of Jesus, you now have the best father. The best father. And he wants what's best for you. And you belong to him. You're his. We were told uh, in 1 Corinthians that we have been bought with an incredibly high price. We are owned by God and he paid the ultimate price for us. That was Jesus. He wouldn't do that on a whim. He wouldn't do it unless he meant it. He wouldn't do it unless he had great things in store. So we're now owned, owned by God. The next thing that we can know, uh, starting in verse 19, or starting in verse 20, says, and we can know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding so that we may know him who is true, and we, uh, and we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, his Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, we may know a couple things here. Number one, we may know that Jesus has certainly come, like we talked about the testimony last week, but we can also know that Jesus came so that we could truly like, know God, not just be owned by God, not just be directed by God, but again, that intimate relational knowledge that we may know God. And that, again, we've talked about the ludicrous, just the, man, the audaciousness of this idea that we can actually know the creator of all things, the author of all things, the beginner and the ender of all things. We can know that God and not just know about him, not just know stories about him, but the ways in which Adam and Eve knew him before the fall, to walk, to know what he sounds like, to know what he feels, to know those things. We have now been given the ability to know those things. Are we hampered by sin? Yes, but the access is there. We can know that Jesus came, and Jesus came to actually put understanding in us as to who God is. In the other ways in which we see this play out in the book of Hebrews, same exact Greek phrasing, it says that uh, they were, these ideas were placed in your mind or placed in your heart. As a result of Jesus, the understanding and the knowledge of God has been placed in us supernaturally. It has not been a knowledge exchange in which we sit down and we pour over things so that we can know who God is. No, it says as a result of by grace through faith, this understanding, this knowledge of God has been placed in us. And that's crazy. Again, makes no sense. Makes no sense that I can know the creator of all things, the shaper of the mountains, the shaper of my life, the creator of this interwoven pattern of DNA in me. It makes no sense that I can know him, but we can. And we're assured of it. And it's been granted to us supernaturally that we can know God. Not by, man, 
not by me earning it, not by my reputation, not by my goodness, but just by Jesus. Because of Jesus, we can know God. It's been granted to us to know him, to understand him. It has been placed in our mind. Here's the last line, the reason that I love it so much. In the ESV, it just simply says, and it's, it's, sometimes the ESV is a bit sterile, but it is word-for-word -word translation, and, that, and that's good. We need accuracy. But it says, little children, keep yourselves from idols. Little children, keep, and it seems like such a strange way to end a book, but uh, I love the way the New Living Translation translates this. And it says, little children, keep away anything, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. Little children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. We say the word idolatry and idol all the time, and we think of it as a little carbon image that we would put on a shelf, and that can certainly be an idol. But in the, in the truest nature of what an idol is, it's something that we allow to come in, take root, and be more important to us than God himself. And that's the reason John is just, man, kindly and affectionately saying, little kids, little children, those whom I love, don't let anything come in and take the place of God. Don't let anything come in and take the place of God. Like that's man, such a big idea because it's so easy in our time and in our place to let these little good things come in and for us to love them more, for us to pursue them more. And the world will call them good. The world will call them noble. But if anything comes in and it gets between you and God as a source or a place of your affection, it's an idol. Family can be an idol. Marriage can be an idol. Jobs can be an idol. Your children can be an idol. Your money can be an idol. And none of those things are bad unless they're between you and your affections for God. And it's so tricky. It's so tricky. I love my kids over there. That's not mine screaming, but I love my kids over there. I love my wife. But even the things that I love most in this earthly place, I have to be careful to make sure that my affections for God are primary. And that's probably the biggest struggle that we ever have. And I think it's, the, I think it's probably the reason why John closed with it too, because he knew that, that all of these other things, they could know and they could rest in those things. But man, this temptation to love just something, even to a degree more than God, is probably the most dangerous temptation that we can have because there's so many good options. But John's like, stick with the best option. In the book of Matthew, it says, seek ye first, or seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. Go after the things of God, and likely God will give you that family, give you those kids, give you that marriage, give you that spouse, give you that job that he needs for you to have. It might not be the ones that you want, but it'll be the things that he needs to add to your life so that you can continue to seek him. Little children, keep away from anything that might take God's place in your hearts. I love the fact that God does not leave us with this ambiguous pursuit of him. He doesn't leave us with these, uh, this box of things that we don't exactly know what to do with. He says, no, I, I want you to know. Like, I want you to be sure. I want you to be sure of who I am. I want you to be sure of what I've done. I want you to be sure that I have you, that I, I have your best interest at heart, that I have you protected, that I have you. Like, God desires for us to know him. 
and the things that he's granted. If you are, like, I'll, I'll just say it, like, if you're struggling with knowing those things for sure, man, this week, let's, let's meet, let's chat. We can do it over Zoom. Like, if you're sitting at home and you don't want to meet face-to-face yet, I'm good with that. I'll, I'll do another Zoom call. Zoomed out? Yes, but I'll do another one. Like, I would love just to sit and chat with you. There are several people here now that would love just to sit and chat with you. If you're struggling with just knowing for sure, knowing for sure the promises of God are true and that they're for you, man, we'd love to talk about that. Love to have that conversation this week. Uh, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to go into a, a time of communion in which we'll get to worship Um, and I'll I'll talk about that more in just a second. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your assurances that we can have. Uh, God, we thank you that we can know you and be known by you. We thank you that we can be loved by you, be used by you. Um, God, we thank you for just even these series of if-then statements that we've been looking at for the past several months, God, just ways that we can be sure uh, that we are of you, that we're owned by you. God, I thank you for those promises. I thank you for the spirit that lives in those of us who have been made one with you, God, that attests uh, to the true nature of Jesus, that attests to the true nature of your mission, uh, that attests to the truth of your word. Uh, God, I pray that we would learn to lean on uh, him more than anything else. And God, I do pray, just as John stated at the end of this, God, I pray that you would keep us uh, from following after anything that we would love more than you. Keep us away from those idols, no matter how good the world says they are. God, I pray that uh, we wouldn't make you a priority. We would make you the list and give it to you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Jesus. And it's in his name we pray. The first Sunday of every month, we get to worship through communion. And we're super grateful that we can do that again. Within the Origins family, we have an open table, which means anyone is free to go back and take the bread and take the juice. I will say this, uh, in a rush to buy what we normally buy for a communion, uh, we did buy garlic uh, naan this morning. And so I have to say, if you're allergic to garlic, do not take the bread. Uh, that could end badly. Uh, there, there are no EpiPens that I know of around here, so don't do that. Uh, but otherwise, go ahead, take that, a little more flavor than normal. Um, but open table, which means anyone is free to take communion. And we just have it set up where you take a cup of each, a cup of the bread and a cup of the juice, and, and you can do that wherever you want. Scripture just tells us a couple things about communion. Uh, number one, it's a way of remembering what Jesus has done, remembering that his body was broken for us, which is symbolized by the bread, and his blood was spilled out for us because there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood, according to Hebrews. And we get to celebrate the fact that Jesus paid it all, all of it. Secondly, And it forces us to look forward to the fact that one day he's going to come back and he's going to make everything square, everything plumb, everything just right. Sin will be gone. Sickness will be gone. Strife will be gone. New heaven, new earth. And the eternity that began when we ask him to take us, make us his own, it will be seen in a whole new light, a beautiful light. And so we look back and we look forward. Scripture tells us that to do this, we need two things. Number one, we need to be bound to God through Jesus. So we've trusted Jesus with our life. Uh, We've trusted him to take care of our sins. And we've trusted him to do what we've seen the promises of this morning, that we can know God and be known by God. But secondly, we also need to make sure that there are no sins that are just sitting, stewing, and steeping in my life that are causing me to veer off this path that God desired for me to be on. So if there's unconfessed sin in your life or unrepented sin, if you need to do that this morning before you can stand up and walk back there, great. Take care of that then. And it's just simply just like 1 John 1, 9 tells us that if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us of all unrighteousness. And so we just confess, say, God, this is what I've done. I don't want to do it anymore. 
thank you for hearing my prayer, and we move forward. Don't look back. Move forward. But if you need more time than you have today to do that, if you feel like you just need to sit instead of taking communion, we applaud your honesty there too. So just stay. Um, in just a moment, if there are a few people who have been cleared to work with kids after you take communion, if you could go and relieve a few of our teachers uh, so that they could come out and take communion, and also some of our kids who have accepted Christ and professed him as their Savior, they'll get to come out with us too. Um, but if you could do that, that would be great, and we thank you. I'm going to pray. And then as they play and as we sing, as you feel led, uh, you can just go back to either this side back here with a coffee or to the round table over here and grab those. God, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for Jesus. Um, God, we thank you for what he did on the cross that we could not do. Uh, we thank you that his body uh, was indeed broken for us. God, that his blood was shed on our behalf uh, to pay a price that we could never pay, to cancel a debt that we uh, would continue to rack up to this day if he had not. And God, I thank you for his victory there. I thank you for the victory that we get to celebrate when he returns, being united with him uh, for the rest of eternity, God, in perfect union. Uh, God, I thank you for that day that will come. Uh, but now, God, we worship you by remembering, and we worship you by looking forward. Um, and, Father, if there are those of us here that are, who are dealing with sin, God, I pray that your spirit would direct us to what those are, that we would repent, that we would confess. And, God, then as a family, uh, we could uh, together in union celebrate you. We love you, and it's in your name we pray. Amen.